as people who attended any talk by me previously know, I make a habit of always starting with an image of the sun. That sun is, is actually rising over Ephesus in Turkey, and I took the photograph from Samos, the island of Pythagoras. But why I'm showing you it now is because we have the opportunity to make the necessary abstraction, if we can call it that, and look at the sun as a point of light. If we can see the sun as a point of light, we can see the reflection of the sun as a very beautiful line, which is the second stage in the unfolding of all geometry. That line is parallel. It is not diminishing as it goes further away from your eye. Something not all that many people have stopped to really think about. If that was if what you were looking at there was a road, the road would be out of sight before it got anywhere near the horizon. So we have a point, we have a line, we have the plane of the ocean that that line is sitting on. Point, line, plane. And we have the solidity of the air which is enveloping all of it. We can appreciate the air mostly because there's some cloud above there. So you have the whole of geometry in this very simple image of a sunrise. Point, line, plane and solid. Now I'm going to show an image on the other screen there which I hope is a summary of my own personal convictions and belief about knowledge generally. Now I have to admit I'm not sure <coughs> I got this from a book by Ibn Arabi whose second name was Ibn Flatun, that's the son of Plato but it could be a hadith, I'm not sure. But the whole point of anybody standing up and talking is they are basically sharing their knowledge with the people who have come. And that's what I'm attempting to do tonight and I hope, um, <laughs> I hope you don't drown in any of the knowledge. Next one over there please. Now I also wanted to pay my debts and my acknowledgements to my teachers and my colleagues. I have most primary teacher was Richard Buckminster Fuller. Whom I, this, is, this is me with dark hair many years ago talking to Richard Buckminster Fuller. In fact, I was pointing something out to him, which um, is something I still haven't published. Maybe one day I will. But nevertheless, it was a very important meeting I had with him in London. And it's he who encouraged me to go into geometry. I was a, at the time, I was a painter. I was painting pictures. And I was realizing, as I looked at many Renaissance pictures particularly, that the paintings had a geometry inside them. All the pictures had an inner geometry. Next one over there, please. Now, the other person I really want to pay my deep respects to is John Michel. And this is John, who was talking at one of our Kairos talks explaining his work on the, the patterns that he did in the later part of his life. But he and I were born in the same year and we moved parallel to each other for quite many years in fact. He used to come to my house and we used to share geometric discoveries and things and I was very delighted to be a friend of his.
Next one over there, please. John sent me a little picture. I'm sorry that I haven't got the whole of the picture because I've tried to cut down my slides. But this is the front door of Plato's Academy. That's what Academia means at the top there. A-K-A-D-E-M-E-I-A, Academia. But rather importantly, on the front door, the legend is that Plato quite deliberately put a notice. And that notice said, without geometry you're not welcome. <laughs> now, that's, it, it actually is quite amusing, but at the same time, how many, how many scholars in our day and in the centuries previous to our day have taken any notice of Plato saying, without geometry, you're not welcome? I have a book at home which is the ultimate and probably the most well-researched and top piece of scholarship on Pythagoras. 553 pages, not one line of geometry in the whole book. And I find that to be one of the tragedies of our time. Emma was quite right to say we live in an increasingly secular age. We live in also an age which is drowned in verbal and written word which does not balance and acknowledge the graphic and the pictorial world. It's very interesting, Albert Einstein, who had such an effect on our century, he said that verbal and written words play no part in my psychology whatsoever. I think in terms of pictures and symbols. And he's had more impact than almost anybody. And it's almost impossible to believe that would be the case, but that, that's what he said. Next one over there, please. So, William Blake was very happy to follow <coughs> Plato's basic injunction, in a way, or implication. And that is, as Kathleen Rain pointed out, here's the, either the demiurgos or... God himself, if you wish, leaning out of the circle of eternity, leaning out of eternity into time and spreading his dividers 90 degrees. In other words, if you're going to create a world, you need to have 90 degrees. The world is a square, north, south, east and west. Any North American Indian will tell you that. Anybody here a North American Indian? Don't think so, no. Okay, next one over there. At the beginning of the Timaeus, and in fact this talk in a way is stimulated by dear Brian Keeble, who's sitting in the audience, he said to me, Keith, one day you've got to give a talk about the Timaeus. Well, I wouldn't quite dare to give a talk about the Timaeus, but this is a terribly important quotation from the Timaeus. And it says, we should be content if we can furnish accounts that are inferior to none in likelihood. Remembering that both I who speak to you and you who judge are but human and mortal creatures. So it becomes us to accept the likely account of these matters and forbear to search beyond it. Now how many scientists who are operating today, and I use the word scientists, I should, I can, many words that one can use for it, but scientists who do not take into account the beautiful and the good, because they are so obsessed with the truth, they are so obsessed with otherness, that they tend to overlook the fact that what they're dealing with, what they're offering, is a likelihood. A likelihood of reality, not actually reality itself. Very important. Next one over there. 
So I decided in my flower book to put Timaeus, the spokesman for Pythagoreanism, and the spokesman for Plato's Timaeus, I, he, to put it, sameness and otherness into a similar diagram that we all know very well from the Chinese yin and yang. The whole point being, the circle, which is in the Chinese tradition, the Tao itself, in this case, the circle is the whole and the essence. Now what Timaeus said was, I think it's on the next slide here, what the creator, who was the Demiurgos, the Demiurgos was given permission by the ineffable God to make the creation, and he said that he took sameness and otherness, it's, it's a really good meditation for all of you sometime to really stop and ask yourself what is sameness and what is otherness. We live in a world at the moment which absolutely pays most respect, almost 99% respect to otherness. You won't get a Nobel Prize unless you've discovered some otherness. You won't get a Nobel Prize for discovering a sameness. This is one of the reasons why many of us, quite a few, most people in this room probably, are dedicated to tradition. Tradition is actually discovering the sameness in things which, is, which really means the eternal, the timeless truths. So he took sameness and otherness, in spite of it being naturally difficult to mix them, but when with the aid of being, that is essence, which is being, he mixed them and had made them one out of three. There are three things going on, sameness, otherness and being. And when he had done this, he distributed them in so many portions, and each portion was a mixture of same, other and being. Then he started his lambda in the Timaeus, that is an L shape, starting with one, two, three, eight, and so forth, three, nine, twenty-seven. He made a sevenfold division. Don't bother about that too much at the moment because it's something one needs to read in the, in the Timaeus itself. Next one here. What Plato then said was, or had Timaeus say through his spokesmanship, that the creator had to create these four miracles. And I'm going to call them miracles because the more I personally either experience or think about water, fire, earth and air, as dear Emma said, each one of those things are miraculous and they only happen on our planet. I want you to think about that. These things are only in balance on planet earth, which is in a most extraordinarily golden mean proportion in the whole range of things, with it, the whole range of the planets. So, next one over there, please. What Timaeus said was, God first began by marking them out into shapes by means of forms and numbers. And God constructed them, so far as he could, to be as fair and as good as possible. Now that being fair and good is the very two things which at the moment are most missing from, from contemporary science. The, the question of, is something beautiful, which is fair, and is it good? If you keep those three values together, the good, the true, and the beautiful, you'll always be okay. If you separate them and put all your emphasis on the truth, all your emphasis on the beautiful, all your emphasis on the good, you'll get into trouble. That's my view.
So the next thing, this is how God began to put the shapes together. Surprise, surprise. He made the four elements out of those two shapes. In fact, those two triangles. I've shaded them in right and left because they are right and left. Basic shape is the equilateral triangle. Other basic shape is the square. But Timaeus divides them symmetrically. This four here is shaded is a mirror image of the five. The five is a mirror image of the six. The six is a mirror image of the one and so forth. So each triangular face of what become the molecules of earth, air, fire and water are based on those two triangles. <coughs> What's particularly interesting is that Plato was very careful not to talk about a third triangle. And he avoided talking about it, not completely, but the fact that he avoided talking about it was a very good example of the fact that he'd obviously taken a Pythagorean oath that he would not talk about the dodecahedron. Next one here. There they are. I have included the dodecahedron, which is the bottom one here. But we have tetrahedron at the top, which is the molecule of fire. The octahedron, which is second top there, which is the molecule of air. The third one, top right, is the molecule of water, which is the icosahedron. And finally, the cube of solidity on Earth here. Plato, does, he said there is another one, but he didn't say what it was. It was only Aristotle, his student later, who actually claimed that this one should be thought of as being the ether. Well, ether, in fact, can be taken in many different ways. Some people take it as meaning consciousness itself. Consciousness is that in which those other four things exist. So, you can see the top three are all based on divisions of the equilateral triangle. They're all made out of the equilateral triangle. Here. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pass a little model around for everybody to hold in their hands and please pass it on to their neighbour and will the last person who gets it please give it back to me. So I'll start with this lady here. What I'm going to give this lady is the model top right of the far image there. This is an icosahedron and this icosahedron has the Greek alphabet on each face and this, this is a model of a, of a the figure which is in the British Museum, and it has the Greek alphabet cast on the 20 faces of it. So, oh, wonderful. enjoy it. So <laughs> Pass it on to Emma, and then down the line. Um, next one here, please. Now, this is, this is the, one of the interesting things is that we're all very much indebted to Euclid. And Euclid was undoubtedly a student of Plato indirectly, if not directly. But Euclid does not anywhere in his book explain or show you how to do geometry. Euclid is basically a rationalist and he just proves things to you why they are so. Now what's interesting is, in this first shape here, there is this value, the square root of 3. And I think I should have a stick somewhere, but somehow I seem to have lost it. Not to worry. Square root of 3. If this side here measures 2, this side here will measure 1. That side there will measure the square root of 3, which you'll see up there. And that is something which you can't put into, <coughs> into a number relationship. Square root of 3 
It's something which goes on forever. If you've got a calculator, push the button square root of 3 and it won't come to an end. Which is something Euclid doesn't talk about. Next one here is the second shape I showed you. If this distance is 1, that distance is 1, that distance there is the square root of 2, which you can see up there. Square root of 2, likewise, can't be resolved into a single number. It goes on forever. You, you could burn up all the energy in your computer until you decided you'd like to cook a meal instead of cook your computer any further. But the thing that Plato didn't talk about, which is fascinating, is he didn't actually talk about this one here. He said there was a figure made out of this shape, and we see it here, there's the figure, but Plato doesn't describe it, and that contains an even more profound secret. It contains the golden mean. The golden mean, of which is an extremely good book in the wooden book series by Scott Olson, and the golden mean is now emerging further and further into our consciousness as being absolutely primary important in the way in which the mathematics of the whole universe works. So, <coughs> if that distance is 1, the distance from there to there is the, is, is the, square, is the um, golden mean, or the square root of 5 plus 1 over 2. Next one here. The next thing that Plato was very insistent on was the cosmos must be spherical. Why so? Because the sphere is the most homogeneous shape there is, and the homogeneous, as Plato, is 10,000 times more beautiful than the heterogeneous. So I talked about this in my last talk, and just a reminder that everybody who's got an eye in their head, and most people in this room <coughs> seem to have eyes in their head, Mine wanders more than others, but nevertheless, um, if you have an eye, you have a sphere. And it's one of the most profound things about your eye is that it is a liquid sphere. And it does the most extraordinary things for you. And Plato actually said that sight was what the greatest gift to humanity was sight. And without sight, he said, humanity would never have discovered philosophy. And philosophy is the greatest boon to humankind. Next one here. So, I was fortunate enough to find this picture and get permission to use it in my flower book. But one of the other profound things which recurs and recurs in my own personal experience is the further and further scientists go into the obscure parts of either minute detail or whatever, they fail to actually see that so much of what they want to find is available for them in, for instance, blowing a soap bubble in a garden. That, that tells us something about the whole universe. In fact, they've, curiously enough, they've discovered, um, they've discovered such an immensely large soap bubble in the, in the cosmos itself now, and it's called the soap bubble galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of the things that struck me was, and struck, has struck me many times, was the simple fact of the drops from a tree releasing the raindrops from their branches into the water of a pool. 
And if you see that, you can see some of the most extraordinary examples of how um, the interactions in, at the at atomic level take place as well. But you just take one drop of water into a flat pool of water and you'll get a perfect circle and that perfect circle will grow and you've got geometry immediately just simply from that. The water drop that drops is spherical but the surface that it drops onto makes perfect circles. Um, next one here please. Now Plato insisted on the sphere being the most important thing but that isn't to say that Christianity did not take it up in its own way. Here we see an archangel and maybe somebody will give me a, a vote as to whether it's Gabriel or Michael. Anybody want to have a shot committing themselves? Is this Gabriel or is it Michael? Gabriel. Gabriel, Gabriel. okay. Because I just happened to have an illustration in one of my books which said Michael, so I thought I'd be very careful and ask the audience. <laughs> I thought it was Gabriel too. Anyway, it's just an important thing. We, we hear so much about the differences between what sometimes are called pagan religions and Christianity. It's sometimes a shame to miss the fact that the art of sacred geometry, which starts with Pythagoras and through Plato, is absolutely continuous through both Islam and Christianity. Next one here. Now, but not only that, it is quite staggering that Plato should have suggested there was such a thing as atoms that we couldn't see. And those atoms would fit themselves together in molecules which become earth, air, fire and water. This is, this is his terminology. When we have ourselves in modern times decided to see how close we can get to finding out what atoms are, <coughs> there is <coughs> what's called a charge distribution um, from an electron in an S orbital. That is an atom where, where, without being excited by energy. And, and it is in a perfect sphere. We can't tell you exactly where, this is the most interesting thing, this is where relativity comes in, can't tell you exactly where the, the um, electron is in any particular state, but we know it's within that sphere. Later on, I shall put some energy into that and show you what, what happens. Next one, over there. Anybody got an idea what that might be? Well, it would be lovely if it was. <laughs> it's actually a bee's egg inside its, its honeycomb. That's the hexagon honeycomb, and that's how, how little a bee is when it's first laid. So that's a pearly bee. Whoever said pearl, thank you. Um, it's just a reminder of how often um, life starts, or the initiation, the genesis of anything which is going to be living and real and dynamic, starts as a sphere. Next one here. And that's not to say the least. That is ourselves as our human, uni the egg, the uni unicell in the mother. That's how big we are. If you, this is a thumb and a finger holding a little piece of glass you put under a microscope and that is how big all of us, everybody in this room, started that size. You couldn't have a better definition of a point, I shouldn't think, before it just goes out of sight. So, I, I'm delighted to try and struggle, and I've been helped very much by dear Sandra, to try and look at how 
life develops from this single sphere, which is ourselves, which starts with our mother, and then the male. The male has to become a line, a single line. It, it, it has to wriggle to get there. <coughs> and many hundreds of sperms attempt to get into the egg. But the fascinating thing is the egg actually conducts which sperm it lets in. I said this in New York about 25 years ago, and I've, never, I've had nothing but trouble ever since because people <laughs> want to know how, <laughs> how did I know. And I read it somewhere, but I don't know where. But nevertheless, I read it again recently. There is, there is a matrix of, of, of um, a web around the egg, and that matrix thins out and allows a sperm in. But, but the hormones that do that are generated by the mother, the mother egg. So it isn't, it isn't a macho game of which sperm is liveliest, strongest, has the sharpest push in and everything else. It's actually the egg discriminating very carefully which sperm she fancies. Anyway, next one over there. And there's that extraordinary golden egg. And that is before the sperm has entered. Um, and it is... Um, we've, we've got some really, really remarkable and exciting images these days of what, what it's like to be at this very, very early stage of our personal development. Everybody in this room has had to go through this development. Next one over there. <coughs> the first thing that happens is when the sperm gets in, inside the egg, that's the, that's the same egg. Both the nucleus of, of the mother and the nucleus of the father make two perfect circles and they begin a dance. It's called the dance of the genes. This most extraordinary thing. This is a later stage where the cells part. But initially, this is it. The next one here, I think, we'll show that more carefully. This is the next stage after those two. They're called um, protocells. And then they, these are the two, and then they create this dance between the genes. That is to decide which of those genes is going to be dominant and which are going to be recessive. And then the next stage, as you see over there, is if this is our first experience, our first experience is to be a sphere point. I'm going to use the language of my own book, which I wrote many years ago, and hopefully one day I shall collaborate with somebody to write the esoteric version of it. Here it is. And in here I've explored the idea that a point and a sphere can be the same thing. So, if our first experience was to be a point, our second experience was to be a line. What is the definition of a line? It has a point at each end. That's Euclid's definition of a line. So our second experience, that's, and, and this is the definition of life, the definition of life, as I have accepted it, is life is able to experience life is something living is capable of being able to experience. So our second experience was to be a line. Our third experience was to be a triangle. We're going through the most fundamental geometric moves here. Next one here. Our fourth experience, way, way before that, that's a much later one. Uh, the next move after that one is this one here. 
Our fourth experience was to be a tetrahedron. That is Plato's very first molecule of fire and spirit, if you like. Four spheres. Four spheres. You can only get four spheres so that each of those spheres touches each other. Four is the limit. So, as I said before, our fourth experience was to be a tetrahedron. Now, what's also, to me, very exciting, how true it is or not, I don't know, and I'm not making any claims. Next one here. But that spherical atom that I showed you with the orbits of the um, electron orbits going around it, if it's excited, it goes off right and left, which is here, up and down, which is here, and forward and backwards, which is here. That is the way in which that little sphere, how it actually behaves when it's excited, has energy put into it. So we have the right angles, which give you six directions. Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six. We talk about them as being the X, Y, Z or X, Y, Z axes. Now, the next stage that I've been able to get hold of in terms of looking at what our next experience was, next one here, remember the six? No, next one here, I'm sorry, I've got it out of sequence. No, next one here. Three above and three below. The three below appear to be bigger because of the way the photograph was taken, but that is the octahedron, that's our next experience to be the molecule of air, according to Plato. Or, if you like, if you think that um, these geometric forms are part of our memory, it's because we have actually been in those forms. It's part of our natural experience. But we're only just beginning to discover this because we've got electron microscopes and so forth. The next one here, which is fascinating, is the icosahedron. I've managed to get an image of the human unicell having split something. How you know it's an icosahedron? Because one, two, three, four, five. Five around one. That means, in other words, where that is six, this is 12. This is 12 spheres. We're going to come back to these numbers. The numbers are profoundly important. They're part of the whole cosmic scheme of things. And we have experience being an icosahedron. Now, that's as far as I've got, and that's as far as I would... Um, dare go because um, if you get an illustrated book on embryology I have to say sadly I went to foils the day before yesterday to get one and the illustrations were lamentable the illustrations were lamentable because very few artists can either draw or paint like the people in this room in these pictures very few people now have trained the freehand to be able to draw accurately and to see accurately and I have to thank God that I went to an art school and not a university. <laughs> what am I saying? Um, next one here. Now look how amazing the Neolithic people who didn't even have written language or numbers or anything, they carved these platonic figures exactly out of the hardest stone that was available 3,000 years before Christ. These were found in graves up in Scotland. They were in, in drawers in a museum in, in, in Edinburgh. And dear Chal and myself, Chal who's looking down a camera right there, um, went and photographed these. 
I decided to put tapes on them so that we could see what they were. I mean, it's reasonably clear. This is a cube. This is another version of a cube. That's a tetrahedron. That's an octahedron. That is a, either an icosahedron or a dodecahedron, whichever you wish. And this one I've taped up to be an icosahedron. The Neolithic people in Scotland, over 3,000 years BC, were capable of making these. We have no idea why they made them. What I discovered from talking to the museum people up in Edinburgh, they said, oh, they threw them at each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's all people did in those days. They said, I don't like you. I'm going to throw an icosahedron at you. Anyway, so next one here. I must say, Chalifor and I have had quite a difficulty in getting people, we, we've spoken to scientists, who have not believed these. They think we carved them ourselves. And the only, the only one they wanted to look at was this one because it had a museum number on it. And they thought, oh, that's valid to advise it. It's got a number on it. This is the way we normally look at the platonic figures when they talk about them because the octahedron is usually cut this out of crystal, dodecahedron cut out of crystal, tetrahedron, same, icosahedron, cube at the top, and the sphere in the middle. That's the way we normally are presented them. The Neolithic people had this extraordinary, um, and one might say very organic way of putting them together like this. But nevertheless, they're just right to hold in your hand. And whatever you can't see with your eye is called haptic and optic. The haptic, the back side of that figure, your hand tells you. The front side, your eye tells you. So, next one here. Just very quickly, I'll go through this, because this is the way Timaeus talks about it in Plato's creation. A pyramid, tetrahedron, shall be the element or seed of fire. The second in order of generation, the octahedron, we shall affirm to be the air or gaseousness. And the third, the icosahedron water or the liquid state. Now we must conceive all these to be so small, atomic, that none of them is seen by us until they are collected in their masses. This is Plato making theories about an atomic thing which has taken us 2,000 years to actually prove in modern times. God realized these with exactness and thus ordered them in, in harmonious proportion. That's the way Timaeus talks about it in Plato. Next one over there. This is a modern way in which we talk about solid-state physics. These are four different arrangements um, that modern physicists talk about their atoms. This one is called the molecular structure. This one's called the ionic structure. This one's called the metallic structure. And this one's called the covalent structure. Diamond is in this format. What you see when you look at that up there, you probably find it quite easy to see a cube made out of spheres. Anybody have difficulty seeing a cube there? <laughs> Our very quiet audience. Anyway, there's a cube. Each corner of that cube is built on a tetrahedron coming towards you. I am slightly missing my stick. Do you know what happened to the stick, Stephen? Just as a matter of interest. <laughs> I feel I would point a bit better if I had it. But it seems... Maybe they were worried I was going to stick it in somebody. <laughs> anyway, this, this 
the inner part, the inner part of that molecular solid, which is the way modern physics describes it, is an octahedron. And on each corner of the octahedron, or each face of the octahedron, is a, is a spherical point which makes the cube. This one is two different tetrahedrons going through each other. The big ones as a triangle, and the one on top, then three, and one on top of the little ones. This one is a tetrahedron both ways with a solid middle. This one is just strictly uh, only a tetrahedron. Triangular base and one on top. Those are the four categories of solid state physics as we see them today. And they really are nowhere near different from what Plato supposed so many thousands of years ago. Next one here. Even more beautiful and exciting in a way. What you're looking at there is the, is the, bo the body of a virus under an electron microscope. And if that's analysed, it appears like this. Where's my icosahedron got to? Good. <laughs> what you've got in your hand, whoever's got it, that's what you've got in your hand. This is the molecule of water. And as it says in the Holy Quran, we brought all living things through water. So it's actually fascinating that this virus... The virus is actually the beginning of life from one point of view, although we, we tend to have negative thoughts about viruses. The virus is the first form of living matter, and it is the water molecule. This is the way the uh, micromolecules are in, within the shape of the icosahedron, which is still moving around the audience there. Oh, brilliant. I feel like a regular soldier now. Okay, let's have the next one. I'll just go through these tetrahedrons again. Inside here, that one, that one, that one, the bottom one here, and this one here, that is an octahedron. That is an octahedron. And, and if you take these three, one, two, three, and place this one on top of them, you can see that is making a pyramid. That's making a tetrahedron. And that's... that's if that is the base of the tetrahedron, this one's above it, and that makes the tetrahedron this way. And if that's the base, those three, that one is the top. So you can see all of those are either octahedrons, cubes, or tetrahedrons. And that is a contemporary way of categorizing the atomic world. Next one over here. Next one here. Okay, let's go back one on here. This was the unicell I showed you, the human unicell, right at the limits of our perception, it, the nearest thing to actually a physical point you could describe. The first seven days, and you may have heard of seven days before, the first seven days take us through the platonic figures until we get to here. The next seven days take us through to the vegetable world where we become a mushroom inside the womb. The next seven days take us through to our animal state. So there are seven days, creative or otherwise, which take us through this thing called phylogenesis. That is the different levels of our experience and our being. If anybody in the room doesn't want to be a mushroom, that's quite okay by me. <laughs> Just forget the vegetable bit. But they're very delicious. Next one here. 
This also fascinated me greatly, and I wanted very much to show it. Slightly later stage in the embryonic development, the receptacle for the eye is just beginning here. But this, these developments here is the, the first development we have in a human being is the upright one from heaven, from earth to heaven, our backbone. That's the first dimension. Next we develop arms, next we develop legs, and that gives us our three dimensions. But the number of bones in the neck are exactly eight. The number of bones in the rib cage are exactly 12. The number of bones in the lumbar region where it joins through to our hips are five. What do we know about eight, twelve, and five? Sing me a song, somebody. We have the octave in the neck, we have the pentatonic scale in our lumbar region, and we have the chromatic scale where our ribs are. Now, these are things which can only be observations made. The scientific world at the moment would not at all particularly entertain it or like it or say you can't mix these things, whatever they might do. But what I'm going to do now is to, I think next one there, put a commentary by Lu Xiangshan, who died in 1193, some time ago now, chaps. Principle endowed in me by heaven, not drilled into me from the outside. If one understands that principle is the same as master and really makes it his master, one cannot be influenced by external things or fooled by perverse doctrines. The universe has never separated itself from man. Man separates himself from the universe. Very, very profound statement as far as I'm concerned. And as far as, I, as, far as I'm concerned also, these numbers in here are also profoundly cosmic in terms of the way we experience the universe. But it's a matter of where you want to be and how you want to look at things. Um, how are we doing for time? 10 it's 10 to 8. 10 I better go on then, hadn't I? <laughs> okay, next one here, please. It, it, it's probably there's a gap and then it'll come again. I hope. No, next one will be there. Sorry, Simon. So, again, coming back to Christianity, so that one doesn't fall into the trap of thinking that Christianity and Plato are the difference between a religion and a pagan religion. John the Scot, Eriogena, brilliant man, Middle Ages, called Plato the apex of the philosophers. Can we have the next one on that screen there too? Please? No, no. I've got it wrong. Anyway, can we go back one on that? Come back to that. What Plato said was that there were four levels of consciousness. In the Republic, exactly at the golden mean, if you take the whole Republic as a written statement, golden mean, Plato talks about the four levels of consciousness. The estimative at the bottom, the opinionative in the middle, Above those, the understanding, and above that, knowledge. Divine knowledge, if you like. The school of Chartres, again, the, the Christian school of Chartres, being deeply influenced by Platonism, the historic level was the literal level, the first lowest level was the historic or literal level. 
The second level was the allegorical or the symbolic. What did that mean, the, symb the symbolism? Second one was the tropological, the turning, the moral level. The fourth one was the anagogical or the transcendental level. And those four had to be present as far as the School of Chartres was concerned if a work of art was going to be a work of art. Next one here. I'm just going to show you <coughs> what I consider to be um, pretty important because this is 12 white spheres. You can call them whatever you like, ping pong balls, whatever you wish, surrounding a central 13th. Therefore, symbolically a model of the 12 disciples surrounding Christ or the 12 followers of Muhammad. When the central sphere is taken out, this model here, which is made of triangles and squares, the tapes are making squares through, it turns into this, which is the icosahedron. And all the tapes running through here are now in golden mean relationship. And the interesting thing is, this is the structure of the material and mechanical world. This is the structure of the living world. It, it relies on the golden mean, as, as do the, the curvature in the way in which you open and close your arm and your fingers. And this is coming from the icosahedron, which is here. Next one here. So, if I take this one and that one, that'll give us the six positions that I showed you from the octahedron. In other words, forward and back, right and left, up and down. So we take out that one and these, and we're left with 12. These are the excitation, energy excitations of the nucleus of an atom. These become exactly that model. If you take each one of these balloon-like things to be a sphere. Next one on the far side. Next one here. This is an advertisement for my book, obviously. <laughs> I got this from the Theology of Plato. Theology of Plato is a very tough reading. I would recommend it to anybody who's feeling tough to go and open the book called The Theology of Plato, commentary by Proclus, the great Proclus. And, but what he says in this is the first subsistence of the beautiful is in the intelligible intellect, at the extremity of the intellectual triad, that is the three forces at the highest position that we can think about intellectually. This beauty is a vital intellectual form, the source of symmetry in all things. That's the way Plato saw it. Next one here. Next one here. So when you see a collection of pebbles, which I've put together here, which is the way in which the Greeks did their mathematics. They did mathematics in such a way that one marble would be a number one, but also would be a geometric unit. And therefore the geometric units, that's actually what I bought quite a few of these little pamphlets, which I only managed to get printed yesterday. Um, hot off the press, don't miss your opportunity and all that. Um, uh, and, and made a decision dear Stephen and myself, we, I would sell this for only a fiver and in future it will be sold for quite a lot more. But this, is, this book has in it the way in which the 
Greeks did their mathematics in a geometric manner which nobody has ever embarked on. Nobody's ever attempted to, to draw and model how the Greeks did their work in marbles. They know they did do the work in marbles, but they didn't know how it's done. Next one here. Get it back. One. <laughs> Next one here. 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 Thank you, Simon. Um, I just wanted to show that to you because you may see that as a just a pile of marbles. But what I would like you to do is to exercise your mind a little bit, not only looking at it carefully, and it doesn't take much to see you have one in the middle and you have six around it. You have a model of the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest. But now, growing from here, you have 12 marbles around it. And you can either see these 12 has two growing out of that one making a triangle, two growing out of that one making a triangle, two growing out of here, two growing out of there, two growing out of there, two growing out of there. Or, three times four, this can be seen as a square, this can be seen as a square, this can be seen as a square, that can be seen as a square, and so forth. It's just a very interesting exercise of perception. As you look at them, can you see them as triangles or can you see them as squares? Or can you see them as both? But this is the way in which the Greeks did their mathematics and they never separated geometry from arithmetic. And as Plato has said in his theology, symmetry is governed from the very highest principle of beauty itself in his theology. Next one here. Now, if you're wondering what I've been doing most of my life, I've been making models with students. <laughs> and this is one such model. I think I used to be with people like Chalifor, who's behind the camera there, um, but had great fun in the past um, creating all the platonic figures on a sphere. Next one over here. Because there's no better way to appreciate the fact all those different models we've been looking at if they're made in straight lines, all look very, very different from each other. A cube is very different from this. If you project them onto the single sphere, they all fit together exactly. In other words, this triangle here, this triangle here, is this triangle here. Okay? And this triangle here is this triangle here. So these are two faces of this figure. If we follow the blue lines, this line, that line, that line, and that line, that is the face of a cube. You're looking at the face of a cube. The yellow line going across the face of the cube is the diagonal, which is the tetrahedron. The dodecahedron is from here to here, to there, up to the top, down to here, back down to here again. That is a pentagonal face of the dodecahedron. And they're all together on this model we made with the students many moons ago. Next one here. And the 12 faces of the dodecahedron, I just wanted to show you the importance of the dodecahedron now, quite briefly. Each one of those faces, because there are 12 of them and they're pentagonal, each one of them represented one of the signs of the zodiac. That is, one of the signs which the sun and moon both pass through 
in one complete year cycle. They are actually a way of showing how the dodecahedrons are immediately related to the constellations. Next one there. And there's two different translations I've got, got here. Um, and it just shows you how differently they can be translated. There still remained a fifth... This is where Plato talks about the dodecahedron, but will not give it in detail. There still remained a fifth construction, which the god used for arranging the constellations on the whole heaven. That's one translation by Lee. Cornford translated. There still remained one construction, the fifth, and god used it for the whole, making a pattern of animal figures thereon. Well, the animal figures are... That's where the word zoe and zoo come from, zodiac, the pattern of animal figures which we associate with the constellations. Next one here. This is the apex of the grave of a nobleman of Queen Elizabeth's time, and it's in the main body of Salisbury Cathedral. And what you see here is the dodecahedron. It just shows there was a great deal of um, knowledge, pretty much underground in Elizabethan times, but this nobleman had all the other platonic figures on this grave and crowned it with a dodecahedron at the top. That's the one with the pentagonal faces. Next one here. And there is an example of the, me the megalithic people. And I haven't put yellow lines in here, but each one of these bumps is a pentagonal face. And that's how the 3000 BC megalithic people did it. Next one here. And next one over there. Anybody any idea what that is? That is the dodecahedron atomic bomb which snuffed out 14,000 Japanese citizens in Nagasaki when I was a child. That is each one of these pentagonal shapes here touching the sphere. It was called the fat man type implosion bomb. But it's a little bit, giving you a little bit of a flavour maybe as to why Plato was incredibly careful about giving out information about the dodecahedron. But it's mere speculation. But I would recommend this book. It's quite a good book to say the least. Interesting man. Next one here. So this is the way Plato talks about how we should... Um, sorry, next one. It should be this one first. I beg your pardon. The way is this. For it's necessary to explain it thus far. Every diagram, every system of number, every combination of harmony and the agreement of revolution of the stars must be manifest as one through all. To this who learn in the proper way, keeping their gaze on unity, as there is one bond naturally uniting all these things. Now that one bond may well be the golden mean, but it may mean other things. And then Plato goes on to say, but if one goes about it in some other way, one must call on fortune, as we also put it. For never without these lessons will any nature be happy in our cities. Whether they be difficult or easy, this is the path to pursue. This is what Plato is all about. You've got to constantly look for unity. How many unifications do we experience with each Nobel Prize which is awarded today? How does 
unify mankind? What's the contribution to the good and the beautiful? These are the things we have to ask ourselves. This one here. Here is John Martineau making a wonderful discovery using the models which I've shown you, or, or you can call them ping pong balls, but there's a direct relationship. This is the icosahedron down here. This is, when I show you the two white things together, this is the bottom one. The spheres within these figures relate to the, this is the sun and the moon. This is Mercury, this is Venus, this is the Earth, and this is Mars. So if the overall sphere which is containing these sphere in this model of the donating universe is Mars, then the inside sphere is Venus. If the sphere which is containing these and the sphere inside it will be the Earth. So this is John Martineau who's in the forefront of people trying to see how we can put these things together and unify them, finding the basic platonic figures actually give explanations. The explanations are to the mean orbits of the planets, not the actual orbits, but the mean orbits. And that's very important to understand the difference. So you need to get his little book, the book of coincidences, to check that out. Next one here. So Plato could see <coughs> Mercury, Venus, the Earth, and Moon, Mars, here um, Jupiter, and here Saturn. Those are the things available to the human eye for Plato. So he looked at these. John Martin has also looked at these in recent times, next one here, and come to some extraordinary conclusions, beautiful conclusions. If you draw a circle and put a regular eight-sided figure inside it, and then draw another star octagon inside that. That's one square, that's the other one, making a star octagon. The circle inside that will give you the orbit of the Earth, if this is the orbit of Mars. Then inside that, if you do eight circles, the circle which goes through the centers of those eight circles gives you the orbit of Venus. These are to 99.9% .9 accuracy on the mean orbits. This is no unusual thing. Then if you do this eight-pointed star like this, goes from these extremes, you tangent the inner part of that and you've got the orbit, the mean orbit of Mercury to 99.9% .9 accuracy. There's John actually looking for that unifying principle. Next one here. Next one here. The model you've just seen is inside here, that model is inside here. I haven't, I haven't drawn everything in. But then there's another big star octagon that gives you the orbit here of Jupiter. Then eight of these figures coming out of here, and that will give you a square if you took it from there. Eight of these figures coming out of the orbit outside those gives you the orbit of Saturn. 99.9% .9 accuracy on the mean orbits. Which is in a way of looking through the veil a little bit as to what an archetype is. So, next one here. There is the model. And I've only gone as far as Mars here. All the other smaller ones are hard to draw when you're drawing on the scale I was. Mercury, Earth, and we get to Mars and Venus are in there. 
then we get the outer one is Saturn, the next one is Jupiter. These are the orbits that Plato could see. The orbits that could be seen also by the great Muslim and Christian um, astronomers. Next one here. So when you see that, which is a painting done by one of my students, or one of our students, I should say carefully, um, you can see that there's a likelihood, and I shall only say that, there's a likelihood from these which are octagonal, these eights which we saw on the outside, the orbits of the planets we've been looking at could be found probably with a high degree of accuracy in what appears to be just a mere geometric pattern on a wall in Morocco. But in fact, it may be much more. Next one here, where I think it is much more. And Emma's just come back from here, haven't you, Emma? The, this is the ceiling. What does the word ceiling mean? Seal in French. Heaven. The sky. The ceiling of a, a building. That is an octagon. And in it are star octagons within star octagons. In my personal conviction, it's extremely likely that those Muslims who did that extraordinary work were not just entertaining themselves with incredible skill, but were also giving to a remarkable degree of accuracy the orbits of the planets as they, as they could be seen, as they could be calculated by them. Next one here. A little moral lesson to everybody in the room who are geometers. He who sees the infinite in all things sees God. He who sees the ratio only sees himself only. Next one here, please. A line from Shakespeare to demonstrate in a way how platonic Shakespeare was. Look how the floor of heaven is thick inlaid with patents of bright gold. There's not the smallest orb that thou beholdest, but in his motion, like an angel sings, still quiring to the young-eyed cherubins. Such harmonies in immortal souls, but whilst this muddy vesture of decay doth grossly close it in, we cannot hear it. Next one here. There is the... This is the galaxy we're in. This is the Milky Way which surrounds us. And we are sitting within this Milky Way. Next one is a quotation from dear Kathleen, which is even more profound in a way. And distant constellations move about the centre of a thought by that fiat of that love, whose being is the breath of life, the terra firma that we tread, the divine body that we eat, the incarnation that we live. This is Kathleen Raine's reaction to what is a constellation? Is it inside us? Is it outside of us? Where is a constellation? Next one here. And that's the, that is the mother of Jesus who became the Christ. And what is a mother? A mother is the earth, a mater, matter. That's what a mother is. We are all made of the same mother. Next one over there. And I wanted very much to promote this book, which is here on the table, and I'd recommend it to anybody who hasn't read it yet. It's by one of our distinguished 
um, Temenos writers, Joseph Milne, and it very beautifully talks about the three different positions of philosophy, religion, and so forth. Next one here is a way of looking at that. In my view, there are three necessary, necessary different ways we can look at the universe and ourselves. We can look at it dogmatically, authoritatively, and in an orthodox manner, which we can call the intelligence of faith. We can look at it in a skeptical, critical, and scientific manner, and call it cerebral intelligence, or we can look at, at the intelligence of the heart, which is paradoxical, intuitive, and mystical. It's very, very valuable to remember those three things are all necessary, and we can partake of all three of them. Next one over there. And I'm going to finish on some Vedic, Vedic philosophy. You pervade this universe, and this universe exists in you. You're really pure consciousness by nature. Do not be small-minded. Next one here. So I thought I'd finish with some pictures of the natural world. Next one over here. You are neither earth, nor water, nor fire, nor air, nor space. In order to attain liberation, that is liberation of the spirit, know the self as the witness of all these, as consciousness itself. This is the particularly Vedic way of looking at things. Next one here. Next one here. I hope those speak for themselves and I hope they disturb you as much as they disturb me. <laughs> Next one here. Plotinus adds, doubtless the universe is both great and beautiful, but it's beautiful only so far as the unity holds it from dissipating into infinity. Unity is, is a force like love which holds things together. Next one here. And I'm going to finish on this one. Perfect from the perfect. Beautiful from the beautiful. Eternal from the eternal. From the intellectual world, the sensible world was born. Full was that which bore it, and its plenitude fashioned it in full. Thank you very much, folks. That's your lot.